I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, but in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. Well, the last handful of episodes, whether it's been the Book Boys or this show, has been all about coronavirus, because that's all anyone can talk about. And that's all we ever think about as we sit in our homes, waiting. But um, there's other things to talk about, besides going to Target and being absolutely terrified. The last time I went to Target, I actually stepped on a, like a rubber glove or a latex glove that someone had left behind. I think all the uh, employees get gloves and stuff. Uh, one was just on the floor, and I slipped on it, nearly fell. So, and the place was empty. Everything's eerie. We're not talking about that. We're talking about education. My new position uh, within the company I work at uh, sent me to training, but training's at home. And so we did online training, and it was grueling, and long, and horrible. And uh, my kids were also home because they don't go to school physically anymore. They do online schooling, and they're done at like noon. But not me. I was doing it from 7 in the morning till 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So it was long. And the teacher uh, kept getting so many questions from all of us students that it kept holding up the whole process. So suddenly, we just didn't get breaks anymore. And if we did get a break, it'd be for like three minutes to go use the bathroom. And if we got a lunch break, it was for like 20 minutes. Because he was trying so hard to make sure he's done by Friday. And uh, you learn the nuances of the human condition. You learn that uh, the world is made up of different personality types. Everyone's driven by their own motivations, and some people are driven to leave their microphone on and not mute themselves while they eat every morning. I thought there was one guy who was just eating hard candies, but he wasn't. He was eating uh, energy bars. He'd eat those things. He'd unwrap them practically in front of the mic, like up to his mouth. I don't know what he was using for a mic. And he, uh, he'd just sit there and smack on them, smack his lips, big old wet slurps and stuff. And for the first couple days, the teacher didn't say anything. But then after a while, the teacher uh, said, uh, somebody's eating. Could you stop eating, please? And the person said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm eating energy bars. But this person was eating energy bars for like the first three hours of the day. It was just constant unwrapping every 15 minutes and then constant slurping. How, what does this person look like? Uh, there's another person, uh, this one woman who had a kid in her office with her, which is fine. I mean, it's adorable to hear a little baby making cooing sounds in the background and stuff. Uh, so I wanted to side with her. I wanted to be on her side. She's a, a mother... Maybe a single mother, who knows? Uh, she definitely wasn't getting support from anyone else. Uh, taking care of a baby while trying to advance her career through education. So I was all about it. Good for you. But oh my God, she wouldn't stop asking questions. And she was trying to do pro-level questions too. She was trying to ask questions that were way more advanced than the actual task we were learning about. 
but she'd stop every like five minutes or ten minutes to ask a question to the point where the teacher was just getting flustered because he was trying so desperately to make sure that we kept moving forward. Uh, another man, uh, he, uh, he had the softest voice in the world. Hearing him speak was what I would imagine an angel sounding like speaking. His voice was super soft and kind of deep, but he kind of whispered, eh, it, it, it's hard to explain. He has a deep voice, but it's as if he was trying to fake a feminine voice. So it's a little bit high-pitched and soft, but you could tell his voice was deep. It's hard to explain. Uh, but his mic was practically inside his mouth. So anytime he talked, it sounded beautiful and soothing, but also incredibly loud and basically blew out your headphones, which still could be how an angel sounds when they speak. Uh, but in either case, uh, long, grueling hours. My kids would come down and do their homework at the dining room table with me, and they would talk at me about what they're learning. And uh, I had to pretend to listen because the teacher had us doing step-by-step uh, -step things that I had to pay attention to, and uh, it was super, super stressful. I, by today, uh, which is Friday, I found myself taking my five to three minute break and I would suddenly dust my whole house within like a three minute period. Get the big old Swiffer duster thing and just dust all the pictures on the walls and uh, the banister up the stairs and all sorts of things. Why? Why dust? Why not go to the bathroom? Why not brush my teeth? Because I never had time to do that in the morning. Got to wake up at six in the morning to go do this. Um, only enough time to like get the cat his drugs and uh, get myself a pot of coffee. No, I decided to go dusting. So something happens when you're under a lot of stress. Uh, you start to do crazy, weird, nonsensical things, which I think we can all identify with here with the pandemic going on, that we all find ourselves doing weird and bizarre things we'd never do in a normal world with a social contract. Well, before we learn about the author, uh, Jules Verne, uh, I feel I need to correct myself for my last episode. Uh, the main character in the story I read suffered from what I pronounced as ennui. E-N-N-U-I. Uh, uh, I told my daughter, eh, after I recorded the episode, she doesn't listen to the podcast or anything, and I said, uh, yeah, eh, I had to pronounce words every once in a while like ennui. And she said, do you mean ennui? And I said, no, ennui. And she said, you're mispronouncing it. It's ennui. It's French. It means you're depressed. And I said, oh, god damn it. I sound like an idiot on this thing. I can't look up every single word I run across all the time. I just have to run with it sometimes. But here I am, uh, instead of like uh, pronouncing things correctly, I'm just... Making crap up as I go along. So, uh, some newscasts or some other podcasts that deal with news or you know popular opinion or whatever kind of thing, uh, they have to do uh, corrections from previous episodes. Mine is the pronunciation of the word uh, ennui. I pronounce it ennui or ennui, whatever. Let's move on. Jules Verne, who wrote this story. Uh, Jules Gabriel Verne, uh, born February eighth, eighteen 
1828 and died March 24th, uh, 1905, was a French author ah, who pioneered the science fiction genre. He is best known for novels such as Journey to the Center of the Earth in 1864, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in 1870, and Around the World in 80 Days in 1873. Verne wrote about space, uh, air, and underwater travel before air travel and practical submarines were invented, and before practical means of space travel had been devised. He is the third most translated author in the world, according to the index Translationum. I'm not looking that up. Some of his uh, books have been made into films, even. Ah, Vern, along with Hugo Gernsback and H.G. Wells, is often popularly referred to as the father of science fiction. So, let's dive in uh, to In the Year 2889 by Jules Verne. Eh. Little though they seem to think of it, the people of this 29th century live continually in fairyland. Surfeited as they are with marvels, they are indifferent in presence of each new marvel. To them all seems natural. Could they but duly appreciate the refinements of civilization in our day, or could they but compare the present with the past? And so better comprehend the advance we have made, exclamation point, how much fairer they would find our modern towns with populations amounting sometimes to uh, 10 million souls. Uh, Their streets, uh, 300 feet wide. Uh, Their houses, 1,000 feet high with a temperature the same in all seasons. Ooh, air conditioning. With their lines of aerial locomotion, crossing the sky in every direction, exclamation point, if they could but picture to themselves the state of things that once existed. When through muddy streets and rumbling boxes on wheels, uh, drawn by horses, yes, by horses, they were only means of conveyance. Think of the railroads of the olden time, and you'll be able to appreciate the pneumatic tubes through which today one travels at the rate of a thousand miles an hour. Would not our contemporaries prize the telephone and the telephote? Telephote. Nope, not looking that up. It's probably not even a real thing. More highly, if they had not forgotten the telegraph. Singularly enough, all these transformations rest upon principles which were perfectly familiar to our remote ancestors, but which they disregarded. Heat eh, for existence. As an ancient as man himself, electricity was known 3,000 years ago, and steam eh, 1,100 years ago. Nay, so early as 10 centuries ago, it was known that the differences between several chemical and physical forces depend on the mode of vibration of uh, etheric particles, which is, for each, specifically different. But at last the kinship of all these forces was discovered, it is simply astounding that 500 years should still have to elapse before men could analyze and describe the several modes of vibration that constitute these differences. Above all, it is singular that the mode of reproducing uh, those forces directly from one another and of reproducing one without the other should have reminded, oh, remained undiscovered till less than a hundred years ago. Nevertheless, such was the course of events, for it was not till the year 2792 that the famous Oswald Near made this great discovery. Truly, he was a great benefactor of the human race. His admirable discovery led to many another. 
Hence is sprung a pleiad of inventors, its brightest star being our great Joseph Jackson. To Jackson, we are indebted, indebted, indebted for those wonderful instruments, the new accumulators. Some of these absorb and condense the living force contained in the sun's rays. Others, the electricity stored in our globe. Others, again, the energy coming from eh, whatever source, as a waterfall, a stream, winds, etc. He, too, it is that invented, invented the transformer, a more wonderful contrivance still, which takes the living force from the accumulator and, on the simple pressure of a button, gives it back to space in whatever form it may be desired, whether as heat, light, electricity, or mechanical force. After having first obtained from it the work required... From the day when these two instruments were contrived, it is to be dated the era of true progress. They have put into the hands of man a power that is almost infinite. As for their applications, they are numberless. Mitigating the rigors of winter by giving back to the atmosphere the surplus heat stored up during the summer. They have revolutionized agriculture by supplying motive power for aerial navigation. They have given to commerce a mighty impetus. To them, we are indebted uh, for the continuous production of electricity. Without batteries uh, or dynamos uh, or light without combustion or incandescence. And for an unfailing supply of mechanical energy for all the needs of industry. Yes, all these wonders have been wrought by the accumulator and the transformer. And we can, not to them, also trace indirectly the latest wonder of all, the great Earth Chronicle building on 253rd Avenue, which was dedicated the other day. If George Washington Smith, the founder of the Manhattan Chronicle, should come back to life today, what do you think he were to be told that the, his palace of marble and gold belongs to his remote descendants? Fritz Napoleon Smith, who, after 30 generations, had come and gone, is owner of the same newspaper which his ancestor established, exclamation point, for George Washington Smith's newspaper has lived generation after generation, now passing out of the family, anon coming back to it. When 200 years ago, the political center of the United States was transferred from Washington to Centropolis, the newspaper followed the government and assumed the name of Earth Chronicle. Unfortunately, eh, it was unable to maintain itself at the high level of its name. Eh, pressed on all sides by rival, rival journals of a more modern type, it is more continually in danger of class. Twenty years ago, its subscription list contained but a few hundred thousand names. And then Mr. Fritz Napoleon Smith bought it eh, for a mere trifle and originated telephonic journalism. <laughs> Everyone is familiar with Fritz Napoleon Smith's system, a system made possible by the enormous development of telephony. Uh, telephony. I think it's called telephony. I had this discussion with someone a while ago. Uh, I always saw it as telephony and never heard anyone say it out loud. So in my brain, it was always telephony. But I think it's telephony, which is a word no one says with their mouths. But it's in this book. During the last hundred years, instead of being printed, the Earth Chronicle is every morning spoken to subscribers who, in interesting conversations with reporters, statesmen, and scientists, learn the news of the day. Ah, furthermore, each subscriber owns a phonograph. 
And to this instrument, he leaves the task of gathering the news whenever he happens not to be in a mood to listen directly to himself. As for purchasers of single copies, they can at every trifling cost learn all that is in the paper of that day. Any innumerable phonographs set up nearly uh, everywhere. Fritz Napoleon Smith's innovation galvanized the old newspaper. In the course of a few years, the number of subscribers grew to be 80 million. And Smith's wealth went on growing until now it reaches almost unimaginable figure of uh, uh, 10, I don't know, bajillion. This lucky hit uh, has enabled him to erect his new building, a vast edifice with four facades, each 3,250 feet in length over which proudly floats ah, the hundred-starred flag of the Union. Thanks to the same lucky hit, he is today king of newspaperdom. Indeed, he would be king of all the Americans, too, if Americans could ever accept a king. That's a touchy subject today. Do not believe it? Ah, well then, look at the... Palenfoli... Oh my god, I, I actually have to look this one up. Damn it! Uh, Plenipotentiary. Plenipotentiaries? Ugh. Well, then, look at the plenipotentiaries of all nations and their own ministers themselves crowding about his door, entreating his counsels, begging for his rep- approbation imploring the aid of all-powerful organs, reckon up the number of scientists and artists that he supports, of inventors that he has under his pay. Yes, as a king is he. And in truth, he is a royalty full of burdens. His labors are incessant. And there is no doubt that all in earlier times any man would have succumbed under the overpowering stress of the toil which Mr. Smith has performed. Very uh, fortunately to him, thanks to the progress of hygiene, which, abating all the old sources of unhealthfulness, has lifted the mean of human life from 37 uh, to 52 years. Oh, wow. (laughs) Was 37 really the average human life? No. Not back in 1840 or whenever he wrote this. Couldn't be 37. Uh, men have stronger constitutions now than he- heretofore. The discovery of nutritive air is still in the future. But in the meantime, men today consume food that is compounded and prepared according to scientific principles, like soylent. And they breathe in atmosphere freed from the microorganisms that formerly used to swarm in it. Hence, they live longer than their forefathers and know nothing of the innumerable diseases of olden times. Nevertheless... And notwithstanding these considerations, Fritz Napoleon Smith's mode of life may well astonish one. His iron constitution is taxed to the utmost by the heavy strain that is put upon it. Vain the attempt to estimate the amount of labor he undergoes, and an example alone can give an idea of it. Eh, let us then go about uh, with him one day as he attends his multifarious concernments. Eh, what day? Eh, that matters little. It is the same every day. Uh, let us take at random September 25th uh, of this present year, 2889. Uh, this morning, Mr. Fritz Napoleon Smith awoke uh, at a very bad humor, his wife having left for France eight days ago. He was feeling uh, disconsolate, incredible though it seems. In all the ten years since their marriage, this was the first time that Mrs. Edith Smith, the professional beauty, 
has so long absent from his home. Uh, two or three days usually suffice for frequent trips to Europe. The first thing that Mr. Smith does is connect his telephonote. Telephone... telephone. Let's start over. Connect his phonotelephote, <laughs> the wires of which communicate with his Paris mansion. The telephote, exclamation point. Here is another of the great triumphs of science in our time. The transmission of speech. Ah, it's an old story. The transmission of images by means of sensitive mirrors conducted by wires is a thing but of yesterday. A valuable invention indeed, and Mr. Smith this morning was not... Ooh, that's a tough one. Mr. Smith this morning was not niggard. <laughs> N-I-G-G-A-R-D. Oh, that's a tough one. Of blessings for the inventor. When by its aid he was able distinctly to see his wife, notwithstanding the distance that separated him from her. Mrs. Smith, eh, weary after the ball or the visit to the theater the preceding night, is still abed, though it is near noontide at Paris. Ooh, noontide's not a thing anyone says anymore. She's asleep, her head sunk in lace-covered pillows. What? She stirs, her lips move. She is dreaming, perhaps? Yes, dreaming. She is talking, pronouncing a name. His name, Fritz! Exclamation points. The delightful vision gave a happier turn to Mr. Smith's thoughts, and now, at call of imperative duty, light-hearted, he springs from his bed and enters his mechanical dresser. <laughs> mechanical dresser. Two minutes later, the machine deposited him, all dressed at the threshold of his office. The round of journalistic work has now begun. First he enters the hall of the novel writers, a vast apartment crowned with an enormous transparent cupola. In one corner is a telephone, uh, though which a hundred Earth Chronicle literators in turn recount to the public in a daily installments of a hundred novels, addressing one of these authors who was waiting his turn. Capital, exclamation point, uh, capital, my dear fellows, said he, your last story, the scene where the village maid discusses interesting philosophical problems with her lover, shows your very acute power of observation. Never have the ways of country folk been better portrayed. Keep on, ah, my dear Archibald, keep on. Since yesterday, thanks to you, there's a gain of 5,000 subscribers. Mr. John Last, he began again, turning to a new arrival. I am not so well pleased with your work. Your story is not a picture of life. It lacks elements of truth. And why? Simply because you run straight on to the end? Because you do not analyze? Your heroes do this thing or that from this or that motive? which you assign without ever a thought of dissecting their mental and moral natures. Our feelings, you must remember, are far more complex than all that. In real life, every act is uh, the reluctant of a uh, hundred thousand years that come and go. And these you must study, each by itself, if you would create a living character. But, you will say, in order to note these fleeting thoughts, one must know them. I must be able to follow them in their capricious meanderings. Why, any child can do that, as you know. If never, eh, to make the use of hypnotism, electrical or human, which gives one a twofold being, setting free the witness personality so that it may see, understand, and remember the reasons which determine the personality that acts. Just study yourself as you live from day to day, my dear last. Imitate your associate, whom I was complaining a moment ago. Let yourself be hypnotized. What's that? 
Yeah, you tried it already? Not sufficiently, then. Not sufficiently. Mr. Smith continues his round and enters the reporter's hall. Here, 1,500 reporters in their respective places, facing an equal number of telephones, are communicating to the subscribers of the news of the world as gathered during the night. The organization of the machine, a matchless service, uh, has often been described. Besides his telephone, each reporter, as the reader is aware, has in front of him a set of commuters which enable him to communicate with any desired uh, telephonic line. Thus, the subscribers not only hear the news, uh, but see the occurrences. When an incident is described that has already passed, photographs of its main features are transmitted with narrative, and there is no confusion with all. The reporter's items, just like the different stories and all the other component parts of the journal, are classified automatically according to an ingenious system, and reach the hearer in due succession. Furthermore, the hearers are free to listen only to what specifically concerns them. They may at pleasure give attention to one editor and infuse it to another. Kind of interesting. It's uh, like the internet, except audio only. Mr. Smith uh, next addresses one of the ten reporters in the astronomical department. A department uh, still in the embryonic stage, but which will yet play an important part in journalism. Well, Cash, uh, what's the news? Uh, we have... Phototelegrams from Mercury, uh, Venus, and Mars. Are those uh, from Mars of any interest? Yes, indeed. There's a revolution in the Central Empire. Uh, and what of Jupiter? asked Mr. Smith. Eh, nothing as yet. We cannot understand their signals. Perhaps ours do not reach them. That's bad, exclaimed Mr. Smith as he hurried away in his best humor toward the hall of the scientific editors. With their heads bent down over their electric computers, thirty scientific men were absorbed in transcendental calculations. The coming of Mr. Smith was like the falling of a bomb among them. Well, gentlemen, what is this I hear? Uh, no, no answer from Jupiter? Is this always to be thus? Come, Cooley. You have been at work now twenty years on this problem, and yet... Uh, true enough replied the man addressed. Our science of optics is still very defective. And though our mile and three-quarter telescopes, period. T-H-O-U-G-H. Not through. All right. I think something got uh, written incorrectly. Uh, Listen to that, Pierre, broke in Smith, turning to a second scientist. Optical science defective. Optical science is your specialty. But, he continued, again dressing William Cooley, Failing with Jupiter? Are we getting any results uh, from the moon? Yeah, the case is no better there. This time you may not lay the blame on the science of optics. The moon is immeasurably less distant than Mars. Yet with Mars, our communication is fully established. <laughs> I presume you will not say that you lack telescopes. Telescopes? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no is a capital O. And then N-O, not O-H. That's weird. The trouble here is about inhabitants. That's it, added Pierre. So then the moon is uh, positively uninhabited? Asked Mr. Smith. At least, answered Cooley, on the face which she presents to us. As for the opposite side, uh, who knows? Ah, the opposite side. You think then, remarked Mr. Smith, musing, uh, if one could but... Could what? Why, turn the moon about face, ah. 
Ah, there's something in that, cried the two men at once. And indeed, so confident was their air, they seemed to have no doubt as to the possibility of success in such an undertaking. Meanwhile, asked Mr. Smith after a moment's silence, have you no news of interest today? Indeed we have, answered coolly. The elements of uh, Olympus are definitively settled. The great planet gravitates beyond Neptune at the mean distance of... Oh, boy. That's a lot of miles. From the sun. And to traverse its vast orbit takes uh, 1,300 years. 294 days, 12 hours, 43 minutes, 9 seconds. Why don't you tell me that sooner, cried Mr. Smith. Now inform the reporters of this straightaway. You know how eager is the curiosity of the public with regard to these astronomical questions. Uh, that news must go into today's issue. That'd be refreshing to have the general public be interested in space <laughs> in our modern times. Then the two men bowing to him, Mr. Smith passed into the next hall, an enormous gallery upward of 3,200 feet in length devoted to atmospheric advertising. Everyone has noticed those enormous advertisements reflected from the clouds, so large that they may be seen by the populations of whole cities or even of entire countries. This, too, is one of Mr. Fritz Napoleon Smith's ideas. And in the Earth Chronicle building, a thousand projectors are constantly engaged in displaying upon the clouds these mammoth advertisements. When Mr. Smith today entered the Sky Advertising Department, he found the operators sitting with folded arms at their motionless projectors and inquired as to the cause of their inaction. I, in response, the man addressed simply pointed to the sky, which was a pure blue. Yes, muttered Mr. Smith, a cloudless sky. That is too bad. What wants to be done? Shall we produce rain? Eh, that might do. But is there any use? All we need is clouds, not rain. Go, said he, addressing the head engineer. Go see Mr. Samuel Mark of the Meteorological Division of the Scientific Department and tell him for me to go to work in earnest on the question of artificial clouds. It will never do for us to be thus always at the mercy of cloudless skies. Mr. Smith's daily tour through these several departments of his newspaper is now finished. Next... From the advertisement hall, he passes the reception chamber, where the ambassadors accredited to the American government are awaiting him, desirous of having a word of counsel or advice from the all-powerful editor. A discussion was going on when he entered. Your Excellency will pardon me, the French ambassador was saying to the Russian. But I see nothing in the map of Europe that requires change. The north for the Slavs? Yes, of course. But the south? for the men's, our common frontier, the Rhine. It seems to me serves very well. Besides, my government, as you must know, will firmly oppose every movement, not only against Paris, our capital, or of our two great prefectures, Rome and Madrid, but also against the kingdom of Jerusalem and the dominion of the St. Peter, of which France means to be the trusty defender. Well said, exclaimed Mr. Smith. How is it, he asked, turning to the Russian ambassador, that you Russians are not uh, content with your vast empire, the most extensive in the world, stretching from the banks of the Rhine to the celestial mountains to the Karakorum, whose shores are washed by the frozen ocean, the Atlantic, the Mediterranean, and the Indian Ocean? Then, uh, what is the use of threats? 
is more possible in view of modern invention asphyxiating shells capable of being projected a distance of 60 miles. Ooh, 60 miles. An electric spark of 90 miles. Ooh, 90 miles. That can, at one stroke, annihilate a battalion to say nothing of the plague, the cholera, the yellow fever, that the belligerents might spread amongst the antagonists mutually, and which would in a few days destroy the great armies. True, answered the Russian. But can we do all that we wish? As for us Russians, pressed on our eastern frontier by the Chinese, we must, at any cost, uh, put forth our strength for an effort toward the west. O, which is just the letter O, is that all? In that case, said Mr. Smith, uh, the thing can be arranged. I will speak to the Secretary of State about it. Uh, the mention of the Chinese government uh, should be called in the matter. This is not the first time the Chinese have bothered us. Under these conditions, of course, said the Russian ambassador, declared himself satisfied. Ah, Sir John. What can I do for you? asked Mr. Smith as he turned to the representative of the people of Great Britain, who until now had uh, remained silent. Uh, a great deal, was the reply. If the Earth Chronicle would but uh, open a campaign in our behalf. And for what object? Uh, simply the annulment of the Act of Congress annexing to the United States the uh, British Islands. Though by a just turnabout of things here below, Great Britain has become a colony of the United States. Ooh, and the English are not yet reconciled to the situation. At regular intervals, they are ever addressing the American government vain complaints. A campaign against the annexation that has been an accomplished fact for 150 years, exclaimed Mr. Smith. How can you people suppose that I would do anything so unpatriotic? We at home think that uh, your people must now be sated. The Monroe Doctrine is fully applied, and the whole of America belongs to the Americans. Yeah, what more do you want? Besides, we will pay whatever we ask. Indeed, answered Mr. Smith, uh, manifesting the slightest irritation. Well, you English uh, will ever be the same. And uh, no, no, Sir John, do not count on me for help. Uh, give up your fairest province, Britain? Why well, ask France generously to renounce uh, possession of Africa? Eh, what magnificent colony, the complete conquest of which is their labor of 800 years. Eh, you'll be well received. You decline. All is over then, murmured the British agents sadly. The United Kingdom falls to the share of the Americans and the Indies. Eh, to that of the Russians, said Mr. Smith, completing the sentence. Australia. He has an independent government. Then nothing at all remains for us, sighed Sir John, downcast. Eh, nothing? asked Mr. Smith, laughing. Well, now there's Gibraltar. With this sally, the audience ended. The clock was striking twelve, the hour of breakfast. Mr. Smith turns to his chamber with a, the hour of breakfast. All right. Mr. Smith returns to the chamber, uh, where the bed stood in the morning, a table all spread, comes up through the floor. Mr. Smith, being above all practical man, has reduced the problem of existence to its simplest terms. For him, instead of the endless suites of apartments of the olden time, one room fitted with ingenious mechanical contrivances is enough. Here he sleeps, takes his, oh, it's a studio apartment, takes his meals and in short lives. He seats himself in the mirror of the phonotelephote 
It is seen the same chamber. I don't know why I have such a tough time with that word. The same chamber at Paris, which appeared in the morning. A table furnished forth is likewise in readiness here. For, notwithstanding the difference of hours, Mr. Smith and his wife have arranged to take their meals simultaneously. Ah, it's delightful, thus, to take breakfast, tete-a-tete, with one who is 3,000 miles or so away. Uh, just now, Mr. Smith's chamber has no occupant. Yeah, she's late. Women's punctuality. Progress is everywhere except there, muttered Mr. Smith as he turned the tap for the first dish. For like all wealthy folk in our day, Mr. Smith has done away with the domestic kitchen and is a subscriber to the Grand Alnimation Company, which sends through a great network of tubes to subscribers, residents, all sorts of dishes. As a varied assortment, it is always in readiness. A subscription costs money to be sure, but the cuisine is of the best. And the system has this advantage that it does away with the pestering race of the, oh God, cordon blues. Okay, whatever. Mr. Smith received and ate all alone the, oh boy, here we go, another French word, hors d'oeuvres. I want to say hors d'oeuvres, but it's hors d'oeuvres. There, my daughter can't yell at me. Entrees! Oh God, roadie. Not looking it up. Probably mispronounced that. And legumes that constituted the repast. He was just finishing the dessert when Mrs. Smith appeared in the mirror of the telephote. Why, where have you been? Asked Mr. Smith the telephone. Hey, what? You're already at the desserts? Then I am late, she exclaimed with a winsome naivete. Where have I been, you ask? Why... At my dressmakers. The hats are just lovely this season. I suppose I forgot to note the time. And so I'm a little late. Hey, yes, a little, growled Mr. Smith. So little that I've already quite finished breakfast. Excuse me if I leave you now, but I must be going. Oh, just the letter O. Certainly, my dear. Goodbye till the evening. Oh, she's cheating on him. Smith stepped into his air coach, which wasn't waiting for him at the window. Where do you wish to go, sir? inquired the coachman. Ah, let me see. I have three hours, Mr. Smith. Jack, take me to my accumulator works at Niagara. For Mr. Smith has obtained lease of Great Falls of Niagara. For ages, the energy developed by the falls went unutilized. Smith, applying Jackson's innovation, uh, now collects this energy and uh, lets or sells it. His visit to the works took more time than he had anticipated. It was four o'clock when he returned home, just in time for the daily audience, eh, which he grants to callers. One readily understands how a man situated as Smith is, is beset with requests of all kinds. Now it is an inventor needing capital. Again, some visionary who comes to advocate a brilliant scheme which must surely yield millions of profit. A choice has to be made between these projects. Rejecting the worthless, examining the questionable ones, accepting the uh, meritorious, and uh, the work Mr. Smith devotes every day to full hours. The callers were fewer today than usual, only twelve of them. Uh, these eight had only impractical schemes to propose. In fact, one of them wanted to revive painting, Ugh. a fallen art into destitute owing to the progress made in color photography. <laughs> Another, a physician, boasted that he had discovered a cure for nasal catara. 
These impracticables were dismissed in short order. Of the four projects favorably received, the first was of a young man whose broad forehead <laughs> betokened his intellectual power. Sir, I am a chemist, he began, and as such I come to you. Well, once the elementary bodies, said the young chemist, were held to be 62 in number a hundred years ago, they were reduced to 10. Now, only three remain, irresolvable, as you are aware. Uh, yes, yes. Well, sir, these also I show to be composite. In a few months, in a few weeks, I shall succeed in solving the problem. Indeed, it may take only a few days. Oh, and then? Then, sir, I shall simply have determined the absolute. All I want is money enough to carry my research to a successful issue. Very well, said Mr. Smith. And what will be the practical outcome of your discovery? The practical outcome? Why... Uh, that shall be to produce easily all bodies, whatever. Stone, uh, wood, metals, fibers, and flesh and blood, queried Mr. Smith, interrupting him. Do you pretend that you expect to manufacture a human being out and out? No, why not? Mr. Smith advanced a hundred thousand to the young chemist and engaged his services for the Earth Chronicle Laboratory. The second of the four successful applicants, starting from experiments made so long ago as the 19th century and again and again repeated, had conceived the idea of removing an entire city all at once from one place uh, uh, to another. His special project had to do with the city of Granton, situated, as everybody knows, uh, some 15 miles inland. He proposed to transport the city on rails <laughs> and to change it into a watering place. Uh, the profit, of course, would be uh, enormous. Mr. Smith, captivated by the scheme, he had bought a half interest in it. As you are aware, sir, began the applicant number three, by the aid of our solar and terrestrial accumulators and transformers, we are able to make all the seasons the same. I propose to do something better still, transform into heat a portion of the surplus energy at our disposal. Send this heat to the poles. Then to the polar regions, relieved of their snow cap, will become a vast territory available for man's use. Oh, so water won't rise. Hey, what do you think of the scheme? Leave your plans with me and come back in a week. I will have them examined in the meantime. So far, this story is just a lot of bragging about a very important person. Finally, the fourth announced the early solution of a weighty scientific problem. Everyone will remember uh, the bold experiment made a hundred years ago by Dr. Nathaniel Faithburn. Uh, the doctor being a firm believer in human hibernation. In other words, the possibility of our suspending our vital functions and calling them into action again after a time eh, resolved to subject the theory of the practical test to this end. Having the first made his last will and pointed out the proper method of awakening him, having also directed that his sleep was to continue a hundred years to a day from the certain date of his apparent death, he unhesitatingly put the theory to the proof of his own person. Reduced to the condition of a mummy, eh, Dr. Fairburn was confined and laid in tomb. Time went on. September 25th, 2889 being the day set for his resurrection, it was proposed to Mr. Smith that he should permit the second part of the experiment to be performed at his residence this evening. Agreed. Be here at ten o'clock, answered Mr. Smith, and with that the day's audience was closed. 
Left to himself, feeling tired, he lay down in an extension chair, like in his one-room home. Then, touching a knob, he established communication with the Central Concert Hall, whence our greatest maestros, maestros, sent out the subscribers the delightful successions of accords, determined to, by recondite algebraic formulas, night was approaching. Entranced by the harmony, forgetful of the hours, Smith did not notice it was growing dark. It was quite dark. When he was aroused by the sound of a door opening. Hey, who is there? He asked, touching a communicator. Suddenly, in consequence of the vibrations produced, the air became luminous. Ah, you, doctor? Yes, was the reply. How are you? I'm feeling well. Yeah, good. Let me see your tongue. All right, your pulse. Regular. And your appetite? Uh, only passably good. Yes, the stomach. There's the rub. You're overworked. If your stomach is out of repair, you must be mended. That requires study. Uh, we must think about it. In the meantime, said Mr. Smith, you will dine with me. As in the morning, the table rose out of the floor, and again in the morning, the portage rodi ragos, and the gooms were supplied through their food pipes. I'm not going to pretend like I pronounced any of those correctly. Toward the close of the meal, phonotelephotic communication was made with Paris. Smith saw his wife seated alone at the dinner table, looking anything but pleased at her loneliness. Pardon me, my dear, for having left you alone, he said through his telephone. I was with Dr. Wilkins. Ah, the good doctor, remarked Mrs. Smith, her countenance lightening up. Yes, but pray, uh, when are you coming home? Eh, uh, this evening. Ah, very well. Do you come by tube or by air train? Oh, uh, by tube. Yes, and at uh, what hour will you arrive? Eh, yeah, about eleven, I suppose. Eleven by, uh, mm, Centropolis time, you mean? Yes. Goodbye, then, for a little while, said Mr. Smith, as he severed communication with Paris. Dinner over, Dr. Wilkins wished to depart. I should expect you at ten, said Mr. Smith. Today, it seems, is the day for the return to life of the famous Dr. Faithburn. You did not think of it, I suppose. The awakening is to take place in my house. You must come and see. I shall depend on you being there. Ah, come back, answered Dr. Wilkins. Left alone, Mr. Smith busied himself with examining his accounts, a task of vast magnitude, having to do with transactions which involved a daily expenditure of upward to 80000 Eight, oh, sorry, 800000 Fortunately, indeed, the stupendous progress of mechanic art in modern times make it comparatively easy, thanks to the piano electro-reckoner. The most complex calculations can be made in a few seconds. Uh, in two hours, Mr. Smith completed this task just in time. Scarcely had he turned over the last page when Dr. Wilkins arrived. After him came the body of Dr. Faithburn, escorted by a numerous company of men of science. They commenced work at once. The casket being laid down in the middle of the room, the telephote was got in readiness. The outer world readily notified and actually anxiously expected. For the whole world could be eyewitness to the performance. A reporter, meanwhile, like the chorus in ancient drama, explaining it all. Vivavo oh, Vivavoshi. Uh, through the telephone. Uh... They are opening the casket, he explained. Uh, now they are uh, taking Faithburn out of it. A veritable mummy. Uh, yellow, hard, and uh, and dry. Strike the body, and it resounds like a block of wood. Uh, they're now applying heat. Uh, not electricity. 
Yep, no result. These experiments are suspended for a moment while Dr. Wilkins makes an examination of the body. Dr. Wilkins, rising, uh, declares the man to be dead. Ah, oh, dead, exclaims everyone present. Yes, answers Dr. Wilkins, dead. <laughs> How long has he been dead? Dr. Wilkins makes another examination. A uh, hundred years, he replies. The case stood, just as the reporter said. Faith Byrne was dead. Quite certainly dead. Here is a method that needs improvement, remarked Dr. Smith to Dr. Wilkins, as the Scientific Committee on Hibernation bore the casket out. So much for that experiment. Eh, but if, for, if that poor Faithburn is dead, at least he's sleeping, he continued. I wish I could get some sleep. <laughs> I'm tired out. Doctor, quite tired out. Do you not think that a bath would refresh me? <laughs> Certainly. But you must wrap yourself up well before you go out in the hallway. You must not expose yourself to the cold. Hallway? Why, doctor, as you well know, everything is done by machinery here. It is not for me to go out of the bath. The bath will come to me. Yeah, just look. He pressed a button. And after a few seconds, a faint rumbling was heard, which grew louder and louder. Suddenly the door opened. Yeah, and the tub appeared. Such... For this year of grace, 2889, is the history of one day in the life of the editor of the Earth Chronicle. And the history of that one day is the history of 365 days every year, except leap years, and then of 366 days, for as yet no means have been found of increasing the length of the terrestrial year. As useless as it was entertaining. I think that's how I'm going to describe this short story that we just read by Jules Verne. Um, he used the day in the life of an incredibly powerful and wealthy man as a canvas to paint his ideas of what technology will be like in the future. Uh, his ideas were aspiring to big and grand and amazing things. But uh, when you read about them, they just seem really annoying. And the... Kind of white trash. The idea of living in a studio apartment. Uh, it talks about how the temperature is the same all the time, but really it's just an air conditioner sticking out of your wall up by the ceiling. Uh, and whenever you want nachos, as you sit on your futon, you hit a button and a whole table comes up out of the floor with a single plate of nachos. And then you smile quietly to yourself and say, this is the future. But... um that doesn't seem so great now. Uh, not that we can really just have food produced on the spot like that, but uh, yeah, it's pretty close. You get uh, Blue Apron is a place that'll send you stuff that you can cook really quickly and everything. Uh, anyways, my point is, advertisements on clouds? Eh, that doesn't sound like any fun. It sounds pretty horrible. Uh, talking to people on other planets? We could do that. We could do that right now if we wanted to. There's nobody on other planets, but... As soon as we get one on Mars or have people colonize the moon, yeah, we'll be talking to them all the time. We'll get bored of them. If anything, we've already seen that with the moon landings back in the 70s. People stop tuning in. Um, that'll happen here. So, eh. He did mention a couple pandemics, which was uh, gross. As I was reading that part, I thought, oh, 
How come every single book I'm reading has something to do with something horrible happening now? My daughter uh, actually started reading Akira, the comic books. There's like five or six or seven of them. I don't know. I'm a moron. I didn't pay attention. Uh, And she... I've had those books around for a while because a friend loaned them to me. And she was bored, and I said, well, why don't you read Akira? I mean, I've seen the cartoon. It's freaking weird. I'm sure the comic is just insane. And she read the first one and just wasn't really into it. But recently she said, hey, did you know that Akira is based on 2020 and how Japan was supposed to have the Olympics here, but they had to cancel it because of a giant catastrophe, which is what already just happened right now. So now she read all of them. Anyways, the point is... uh, Weirdly, things keep lining up to keep reflecting on what's happening now, and it's disturbing. Not that I want to keep harping on the whole uh, coronavirus thing, but mother of God going to Target is uh, just scary. Uh, Going to the grocery store is terrifying. They have giant plastic windows up now in front of uh, the thing. These complaints are minor compared to people that are living in France, in England, uh, definitely in Italy. People in China or Japan uh, or, you know, North South Korea, all these places have already experienced the worst of it. But here in tiny little Minnesota, uh, we're just starting to see it happen. And um, it's kind of scary because normally nothing ever happens out here. Uh, And so eh, it's kind of hard to stop talking about. Point is, uh, this story was weird, but it wasn't bad. So I guess that's good. So tune in next week, and uh, hopefully we'll have something a little more reassuring and a little more escapist and doesn't just remind you of the crappy world you're living in. Thanks for listening.